So all of these little things were kind of right there in the open. And the, the, the ultimate thing was that the, um, the Planning Act, so provincial policy, literally had stipulated that all municipalities have to adopt a framework for secondary suites to be allowed. So the, the, the planning policy was already in place where the province had said something that the municipalities had to adopt, but oftentimes there's nobody at the municipalities tasked with looking at what the, what the province is saying. Um, so that became the linchpin of our argument when we were in hmm. front of planning, and we held three consultations, one east, one west, and then one central at Evergreen, partnered up with Evergreen, um, the organization, to kind of write that initial report. And that report, with the help of two councillors, um, went in front of Toronto and East York Council, it was adopted, and then a year later it was adopted citywide. And so now you have an as-of-right entitlement similar to BC, um, that permits laneway housings, provided you have the right access and, and site requirements. Welcome to Toronto Under Construction, a podcast about everything Toronto real estate. Welcome to Toronto Under Construction, a podcast about everything Toronto real estate. I'm your host, Ben Myers, with my co-host here, Steve Cameron. How's it going, Steve? Listen. It's going good. It is going good with Steve. You want to know why? Let me tell you why. I was walking over here, and I was walking through the path. We're at 150 King West. I came from Young and Adelaide, the Dynamic Funds Tower. And as I was walking here, I really felt a sense of encouragement because I saw people. I saw lots of people, not just a couple people. I'm talking like dozens. And all the retail stores were open. Now, obviously, there's a couple casualties. But I got to tell you, if for the first time in eight months, it felt pretty good to be downtown. And there was some sense of normalcy, maybe. Yeah, I stopped in the mall to get the, the SD card, the Eaton Center. It was pretty busy. There's lots of people in there. And, and I was actually surprised at how many people there were, were on the streets. So, yeah, feeling good. Did, feeling you, good. Uh, did you see a lot of... Uh, empty stores or closed down retail, or for the most part, did it look not not in, not in the Ena Center? No, there wasn't like a single store that I saw that was that was shut down. So, wow, feeling good. Well, well that's good. Well, let's get into it. We don't want to leave our leave our guest waiting too long, but I do want to mention that this podcast is sponsored by Nizo Studios. The award-winning Nizo Studios is a premier one-stop digital studio for all your architectural, visualization, and scale model needs. Nizo can also help market your project and launch your sales center physically or virtually. Visit nizostudios.com and ask about LiveSite, their virtual sales center software. It's the media darling taking the building industry sales process by storm. We also have someone that's taken the world by storm. Why don't you give the bio of our, our guest today? We are super excited to welcome this gentleman to the show, a seasoned entrepreneur and developer with 16 years of real estate experience under his belt. Mr. Alex Sharp began his career in commercial real estate investment brokerage, working on GTA industrial property acquisition for institutional and high net worth clients. This led to a role in the structuring, financing, and listing of a public company on the TSX Venture Exchange. 
In 2009, Alex co-founded the Spire Group of Companies, originating with brokerage and eventually expanding into the development and asset management. Spire operates a number of growing investments on behalf of its principals. In 2012, Alex co-founded IQ Offices, where we are sitting at this moment. The leading Canadian-owned co-working and flexible office space operator with multiple locations across Vancouver, Toronto, Ottawa, and Montreal. In 2014, Alex co-founded Lanescape, which worked with the City of Toronto to establish legal planning framework for residential laneway intensification throughout the city's many neighborhoods. Changing Lanes, as the initiative would come to be known, was adopted by City Council in the summer of 2018, and Lanescape is now the market-leading design builder in this innovative and emerging housing topology. Alex graduated from the University of Guelph. Nice. I didn't know that. Alma mater, U of G. Griffin, baby. Griffin. Let's go. My hometown. Bachelor uh, with a Bachelor of Commerce, and imagine this with a major in real estate and housing. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Mr. Cameron, <laughs> Mr. Myers. Thank you for having me. No problem. Thank you for having us. So tell us. Where are we right now? This is a great space. Tell me where we're sitting. We're sitting uh, in our boardroom, one of our boardrooms at 150 King Street West. This socially is distanced, of course. Socially distanced. Like we have our stickers. We had our, uh, we had our temperature scans for the guests on the way in. We did. Um, I was actually kind of nervous. Yeah, I get a little <laughs> nervous every day. She was it's looking sort of at my me check like, on myself if I'm feeling okay, but my... My temperature's a little higher. I'll know first thing coming into the office. But yeah, we're at our. I walked you through the path, right? So like I was saying I had my, I wore my heavier coat today. I had my scarf on. I was carrying you all the luggage. You should have been nervous then. No, I was hot. Temperature was up. I was way up. I was just leaking. Yeah. Get off the elevator, and she's got this red scan on my forehead. I thought yeah, it's gonna and, be turned and, away. And uh, I mean, ultimately, we uh, we are doing our best to try to make sure that people feel safe when they come to the office. That's that's the biggest thing. I think as much as there's a there's a virus and there's a, a risk to just being outside and, and uh, you know, putting yourself uh, in a situation when you're downtown, when you're going to the office where you're exposing yourself to other people, it's sort of incumbent on us as operators and providers of the space to make sure that we're doing all the necessary um, checks and protocols and we're following public health guidance uh, to make sure that people feel safe um, and, and anything that's within our control that we're doing our best to mitigate risk. So we're in our head office location You did a great here. job in that, but tell, tell us, where are we? Yeah, we have our head office for the company at 150 King Street West, corner of King and University. We've got three floors here, um, a mix of, of private office and then larger team rooms. Um, and obviously it serves as our head office for our, our business, but also a bunch of other businesses that, that call this place home as well. Well, it's a beautiful space. So awesome. Well, thanks we'll, for take, we'll, us. we'll take us take us back a little bit. You know, you're you're graduating from the University of Guelph with a with a degree in real estate and housing. And what was what was the next step? Yeah, I mean, we got a little bit of the background, but maybe yeah. in your own words. I I mean, I don't come from a Toronto family. I don't have any exposure to Toronto real estate um, beyond the work I've done since I got out of school. So when I was I was fortunate enough to get a pretty broad base of experience in university. Uh, one of my summers, I, I was able to go down to the Turks and Caicos, and I worked on the redevelopment of Club Med um, down there. So I was hired by a project management firm out of the Bahamas to go work in logistics. And really, I was I was just a, a utility player, as we like to call them. So I was supporting the project manager who was essentially overseeing the local GCs on behalf of the French company Club Med. So it was a sort of first 
exposure to construction, to management of logistics in a complex place like the Turks and Caicos, which is an island nation. We had suppliers from all over the world, so you're coordinating shipping and and all the needs to f to build out this this uh, this project. But you also had local GCs, uh, and and so you're seeing firsthand all of the inherent conflicts that exist in a construction project. And I was, again, just sort of a utility player. I had an all-inclusive badge, so it was, a, it was a project where we split the resort in half, and we worked on half, and the other half was open and operational. So so you were working a little hungover some days, is what you're trying to tell us. Well, I was 21 years old. It was, uh, it was a great... It was a great job to have through the summer months. Single. I was single. Uh, we had a place on the golf course right across the street. <laughs> uh, and it was just, it was a great learning experience and a, and a lot of fun. Um, and But I realized I didn't want to be in construction right away. I kind of got a sense that it was a grind. And, and again, you're managing conflicts more than anything else. Um, so when I got back, I kind of focused in on development as where I wanted to go. And I didn't really, again, they were a little bit light on the finance training in, uh, in undergrad, Bachelor of Commerce. Yeah. So development is, is a pretty loose term. And coming out of school, I didn't really understand the, the nuances of what was required. Um, but I was fortunate enough to meet some people that steered me in the right direction. And I got hired at a brokerage that was a boutique shop right downtown Toronto. It was an ex-Collier's investment broker named David Ogden. He was, uh, you know, he was a referral from a family friend, and, and I was encouraged to go work for him. And he was kind enough to hire me on initially as a summer student, and then I got a job basically full-time out of school, and that was the, uh, the buy-side investment brokerage work where we were working for CalPERS and AEW out of the U.S., like large pension funds looking to buy factories, industrial assets here in the GTA from generally from families that had bought them and developed businesses inside of them. And usually on sale leaseback basis. So we were always trying to think of innovative ways to get in front of these owners and transact, develop, you know, develop opportunities. And it was a good crash course in learning the finance and the investment side of, of development. Interesting. Interesting. Where did you go from there? Give us the sort of the background as how, how, how that led into IQ. Yeah. That's a, there's Is a, it, was that Spire? No, that was Secure Capital. Secure so right Capital, out of the university, okay. I worked for the for Secure Capital. They were initially a brokerage when I got hired for the first year. That's what they primarily did. And then you went, you took them public, or they went public. David branched off after the first year and and became essentially a principal. So he formed an investment syndicate, um, and they uh, they basically went through a CPC process, so Capital okay. Pool Corporation on the venture exchange. It's a mechanism to go public, and he had a strategy of going and buying industrial assets and greening them, so putting in green technologies driving both sustainability and lower CO2 emissions from these properties, but also, you know, generating savings on the op costs. The challenge was it was a net lease structure. So you had to go in and basically tell a tenant that you're going to upgrade the building and charge them more net rent. And the tenant was like, I don't really like that idea. So it was a bit of a battle. I don't care about the environment. <laughs> well, it, was more, it was more of the financing wasn't structured in such a way under the net lease where you could generate the benefits. Whereas like, an, uh, you know, a, a multi-res asset where it's generally a gross lease, if you're doing something that's delivering savings to your expenses and you're paying the expenses of the landlord, you're going to capture that that benefit right away. Right. Um, but anyway, he, he, he became a principal. I was I was fortunate enough to kind of get exposed to working on the structuring and financing and ultimately the public launch of that vehicle. Uh, and then 2008 happened. And, and when 2008 happened, obviously, uh, the whole market got stuck. There was no cash. Like, there's a number of investment bankers that were all about the strategy in 2007. And then in 2008, it was crickets. Right. Uh, and that was, that was a story for a lot of startups at that time. So... 
Fast forward to 2009, my partner and I, Kane Wilmot, uh, we left and started Spire as a brokerage. So we were we, we just went back to our roots of what we were doing in 06, 07, and early part of 08, uh, which was trying to help investors find properties to buy and invest in. Um, and when we got, uh, you know, when we started the business in 2009, it was literally the low point um, in the market. So we went a year and I think we did one deal and our total commissions were like $18,000 in the first year. So it was, it was a scary time. It was a lean period. But again, I was fortunate enough to start it when I had no kids. I had no, no, I was, I was a single guy, young guy in my mid twenties. And I took that risk and, and ultimately I was fortunate to, to find a partner who was willing to take that risk on me. And we, you know, we stuck it out, stuck together and we grounded, grounded into a success. Eventually it took a few years. Um, and in that time we developed, uh, we, we started a different business that was developing real estate. So we found a couple of interesting opportunities that we wanted to invest in as principals. And we, were, we managed to pull those off and that became the seed capital for IQ for the shared office business. Wow. What a what a venture! So here we are in an IQ office. How many office spaces do you have now? Locations, total locations. Yeah, as of today, we have uh, eight locations. We have four in Toronto. Um, you have this one at one fifty King West. You have Temperance above the Deneen Coffee. Yeah, that's one forty Young Street. We, yeah. That was our original, our first location. Um, right. Two fifty University up the street at Queen Street and University. Yeah. Uh, and then we have five forty five King, which is King West. Okay, and this is the largest of all of them. Yeah, this By is far, it's a flagship. How many seventy thousand square feet here? Sixty thousand square 000. feet over three floors. Wow. Um, this is the flagship. Not for insignificant, sure. though. That's yeah. It was it, from the get go. This location has been very, um, very well received, and we've had a lot of uh, support from the tenant community and um, and the brokers. I mean, I, I think generally when people come in here, they can quickly recognize that it's a it's a higher caliber offering and. Um, and I think our, our, we're very fortunate to have a great operations team who focus like day in and day out, and they just strive to provide a great experience for the members. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, this is our largest. Uh, and then we also have a location in Ottawa that we opened um, just a few months ago. Um, same with uh, Montreal. And then we have two locations out in Vancouver. So, so what was kind of the impetus? Like, what, where did you get the idea to do a shared office space? And I guess for that first one, I, you know, I, I was looking at some of the pictures back on Urban Toronto from 10 years ago. Uh, how did you get the lenders on board? Uh, the, the idea, I mean, to be, to be honest, it was one of my partners now. Um, we had been looking at a, at a variety of different operating businesses that were real estate intensive that would give us a leg up through our our experience in in the real estate business from a brokerage perspective and the contacts and connections we'd made on the investment side. Um, So we we looked at self-storage, we looked at apartments and multi-res, we looked at flips, just generally buying single-family homes and flipping them. Um, and what we what we kind of realized was like storage was really appealing to us because it's a replicatable model. It's 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 produces good cash flow uh, and it's heavily reliant on real estate. Um, but one of my partners told me to go look at um, uh, I mean, we knew about Regis, obviously, but they they had heard about WeWork and they had seen some of these newer, innovative type offerings. Uh, and that's what we did. We started digging into it. We dug into the numbers. And when we looked at the numbers in detail and we recognized, you know, kind of the business model and, and when you get to a stabilized point, what, what it could produce, it was pretty appealing. Um, and again, from my perspective, I was trying to figure out how to be a developer. So I thought, what a great way to go out and buy real estate. You have a tenant that you control. 
you can go in and structure deals whereby you start to create cash flow off of off of providing a serviced amenity rich space which automatically is going to look better than your traditional office space especially back in 2010 2011 uh, where there's very few amenities and it's very traditional and very stodgy you know you drop t-bar ceilings and carpeted floors and shitty hvac and shitty technology and far shitty lighting from, and, far from what we're sitting in and i we just kind of realized if we could figure out how to make this tenant a success it was going to give us a leg up to go and try to buy real estate um and that was the that was the driver i thought it would be i thought eventually we could start to buy the real estate that we were in and funny enough we tried to buy the first location the temperance building oh really i was talking to the previous owner uh a guy in the name of larry brenzel and we became phone buddies over the course of a few months and just kind of were on the phone every few weeks and i was at the time i was a broker he didn't realize i was calling trying to act as a principal and neither did I really. I was just trying to source this opportunity and figure out the best way. And it was it looked like an assembly because there was there was going to be essentially four properties in total for about seventeen thousand feet on a park and two street frontages, which would have been a great a great high rise site right on Young Street back you know in that time especially. Uh, but Larry was smart enough to know after having spoken with his neighbors that it was uh, it was not a development site. The neighbor to the north was a complete holdout. He would never sell. He said you have to be a user to be able to make sense of this this asset and at the time it was in disrepair yeah like pearl vision was on the main floor it had like seven layers of ceiling there was like a really shoddy section of the building that was basically uninhabitable um and so it needed a it needed a big budget it needed a big vision it needed a lot of execution on the construction side and in the end you know we weren't able to acquire it uh the gentleman who owns it now clayton smith um acquired it successfully and he had a big vision for it but he had actually done a few of these types of projects um and so he had you know he had his financing lined up and within about a month we had an loi more or less agreed to with clayton to lease um the balance of what was remaining on the office because he immediately i think recognized the validity of our idea and, right. and the fact that for this building it would be a good fit smaller floor plates great location right in the financial core uh but without you know to be fair without clayton taking a risk on us it, it would have been um difficult for our business to have been launched and so you know i'll always have a uh, special respect for Clayton because he he did take that risk on us and I think it worked out well for for him and for the asset and certainly uh, you know it was it was the start of IQ. So you you do your market research you come across a phenomenal business you do your underwriting you open your first office you expand across the GTA you expand across Canada and then whammy COVID hits. <laughs> <laughs> that's a whammy. That's like 10 years later. <laughs> well, I listen. It I felt I, like I, a whammy. I gotta, <laughs> I, I'm just speaking for the listeners. I'm sure everybody listening is wondering, how are you do, dealing with this? How are you coping? And um, tell it, I mean, you're surviving, obviously. Can't be easy, but we're, uh, we're sitting in a beautiful space that looks somewhat busy. It's not nearly as busy as it was pre-COVID, unfortunately. Um, and that's definitely the case across all of our assets. Um, and it's a function of there. There's a uh, you know there's a public health situation, um, which is is establishing um, a reluctance in people to return to their office. And when it when it first struck and mid-March um, we took immediate action and we recognized the severity of what was to come I, I think I maybe was more optimistic about how quickly we would get back to a degree of normalcy 
Um, and we had a lot of tough conversations in the spring and in the summer and, uh, you know, both internally and externally. And it was, it was a shit time. It was just the, it's been a very, very difficult year. And part of our difficulty is the fact that we were doing reasonably well. And so we embarked on a very big expansion last year. So we were, we had five locations as of the middle of last year, uh, and you know, we embarked on a pretty significant expansion involving both new floors and buildings that we were already located in, in Vancouver and two in Toronto. So three expansions of existing five locations. And then we took on a number of new locations from scratch. Uh, and so we, you know, we had done a lot of work leading up to last year to put ourselves in a position to do that. Uh, and the business was, the business model was succeeding. And obviously we all know about WeWork and all of this craziness there, but we figured even if there was like, uh, a fraction of of the opportunity that the WeWork situation was alluding to, uh, we'd be continually rewarded for growing our business. And unlike WeWork, we actually were profitable. Yeah. Um, so I'd like to get into that in a little bit. So, I mean, at the end of the day, uh, COVID struck us as a business at the worst possible time you could be struck. Um, and so coupled with the second wave and and the fact that our original underwriting sort of foresaw that it would be bleak until the fall and then we would see a slow degree of return now we've readjusted those models into a much more uh, dire outcome from a cash flow standpoint because people aren't coming back and the government is encouraging people to remain reluctant Um, and I'm not a public health expert I'm not even going to get get into that we, we might get into we're that. not getting into that we Steve, might you see. we uh, might but we've had enough guests so. it doesn't, from our perspective it doesn't really matter um nothing really matters except for how people feel and so we're doing our best to control the atmosphere when they get to the office but admittedly we can't control public transit we can't control the the you know how you leave your home and arrive at your office we're trying our best to come up with solutions where needed so you know internally for our staff we're providing optionality on on how to get to work and and how we can subsidize those types of um you know those types of situations for those who are vulnerable or, or or you know, have an issue. Um, but it's a really difficult challenge because our business in a sense is space. And so when the government locks you down from being able to access your primary business asset, and on the other end of the thing, you have landlords saying, in some cases, we have, we've got wonderful landlords in many instances, and we've had great support. And then we have less wonderful human beings <laughs> on other instances. Um, and so it's a mixed bag on that front, but it, but it presents a challenge. Um, and I think uh, I'm very proud of our team and our leadership and our my partners and I have um, have been just astounded by uh, how well our team has responded and certainly how how well we've been able to provide for our tenants in this kind of crazy time. Yeah, scary. Um, I guess you know what, what what do you think what are you trying to do otherwise to try to attract the tenants back here are you still doing the same level of marketing that you would have done in the past to, to, to get new people in or is it just getting the exist people that we're using in the past to to, to, to come back yeah I mean certainly um, we are trying to do our best to market all of the steps we've taken you know from a safety standpoint uh and and a lot of that revolves around the brokerage community so dealing with the people who are in touch with the tenants one-on-one which oftentimes in in the office leasing world is brokers um 
and I think they'll tell you, they'll be the first to tell you that everybody's just sitting on their hands right now. So tenants, in many cases, tenants aren't saying I'm never coming back to the office. That's, that's a narrative you're hearing, which is totally overblown, but they are saying they're not, they're not, okay. they're not. That's the narrative I think you're hearing and you can see the doom and gloom in the headlines that the office is dead and, you know, urban centers are dead and which is insane. It's insane and overblown, but, um, certainly right now where you would have been seeing a lot of activity in the office market, there's no activity. There's nothing happening other than people putting inventory on the sublease market because they don't need the space and they don't know when they're going to need the space. But um, I'm, I'm hearing from brokers, there's a lot of tenants that are talking. They're just talking about how they're not going to do anything for the next six months. So, you know, what happens come mid-2021, I think, is going to be a real telltale sign about the next five years of the office market. Um, whereas right now, we're in a bit of a purgatory state from from everything that we can decipher. Yeah, I'd be curious. I mean, you'd think that, you know, some people whose leases were up that don't want to make any type of commitment might come and use a space like yours, right? And say, you know, forget it. We're not signing another five-year lease. Let's just move the... 10 or 15 of our 40 employees into a space like this and 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 just keep them here until we get some additional clarity on what the world's going to look like. Yeah, there's there's no question that uh, leading up to COVID, you you were reading about and seeing firsthand in many urban markets throughout the world a significant growth in the supply of flexible workspace, whether that was like you said, Ben, coming in here, like the traditional co-working open space, you know, 3,000 footer targeted towards a certain niche of tech or, you know, the large scale operators, the Regis's, IWG spaces, WeWorks, IQs of the world that were doing it a little bit larger scale. Um, there was a growth in the underlying supply of flex space and it was driven by a demand from tenants to get out of a five year fixed circumstance um, because it's impossible, as we talked about earlier, like trying to forecast what my business needs are going to be across the various businesses we operate five years from now is impossible. Let alone five months from now. Five months. Like, <laughs> and ignore COVID. Exactly. You know, between all, all the factors that drive change in a business, none of them have ever been more rapid than they are today. And so the inability for, for a management team to effectively forecast what ultimately looks to be one of the largest line items in your cost structures next to human beings is your real estate footprint. It just doesn't make any sense. And then when you couple that with the administrative annoyances of operating real estate and specifically office space from the technology to the food and beverage to the cleaning, janitorial, to the admin support and all of those little annoyances that get alleviated when you come to a professional operator coupled with programs and amenities and services and promotions and cross-marketing cross, cross marketing of different things that your business is going to need, um, it, it makes a lot of sense to pay the premium just looking at the flexibility component, let alone all of the tack-on value adds. So when you look at like a cost, sometimes you have to educate the, the customer around what you're getting when you come into a shared office space. But when you layer it all in, you know, the technology, the, you know, the CapEx items that you don't have to spend, this HR and the human support that you get, that you get to tag on and leverage, technology solutions and support through the boardrooms, the Zoom rooms. Every one of our Zoom rooms is, or our boardrooms is Zoom capable with professional audio equipment. Um, that That is worth paying a premium for. And again, I think, 
when you get into a COVID situation, it highlights the, the value and flexibility because unfortunately for our business model in this time, we've seen those companies that didn't need the space that weren't coming downtown. If they didn't have a contractual obligation beyond a few months, generally we were given notice that we're leaving. Right. And so that's the challenge in our, in our business in a downward market, obviously. Um, but I think when we see the return to the office, more and more companies are going to opt to, to house themselves in a flexible service exactly. provider. Yeah, yeah. So to get there, when it swings back up, I think that's going to be the mentality or the thought process for organizations because they're going to be looking at their businesses the same way. Are we? You know, we, we don't even know how to underwrite the next five months, let alone the next five years. Why would we sign a five-year lease? You know, flex office is going to be a, a, a very attractive option. Uh, one comment you made was about the landlords. They don't have to mention necessarily who they are, but I'm just interested to in uh, in how they've reacted to this. You know, maybe you could share a positive and a negative story or something along uh, you know those lines as to uh, you know, are they working with you? Are they not working with you? Are they flexible? Are they difficult? Um, or do you, you're looking at me like you don't want to answer this question. <laughs> well, listen, I, I, I'm not going to... Um, I'm not asking you to throw anyone under no, the no, bus. No, there's no... Th listen, the reality of this situation is that it caught every single person, you know, in the economy by total surprise. Um, whether that's rightfully or wrongfully, like, who knows? But nobody was, was, nobody was foreseeing what... Uh, this has become. And I think, so initially, the conversations that I kind of were alluding to earlier on that happened in the spring, um, there was a misalignment in terms of like what the future looked like for sure. And and then now I think what's happened is that everybody realizes that nobody really knows, nobody knows. <laughs> what the timelines are. Everybody can pontificate around different things, but um, nobody knows. And so as long as there's that that hyper uncertainty, uh, we're having productive conversations around how to get to the other side. Um, and, you know, unfortunately, there's some landlords who don't share the view that it's pretty bad, even if, you know, like, even if there's factual evidence so to the excuse contrary. excuse my ignorance. What is their view if they don't think it's pretty bad? Are they... Well, I guess Assuming I guess it's they, pretty good. Yeah, no, they're. <laughs> it's interesting. I mean, again, I'm not going to get into the specifics, but people just, I guess, assume that you have like you know 24 months of working capital laying around as a business operator. Like, I, I don't. Know. You're you're dealing with pretty institutional players as your landlords. They're not. They're no dummies. Well, maybe they are. I don't know. You tell me. <laughs> Steve. <laughs> Um, I'm fortunate to have a number of great landlords that have been supportive of our business. And uh, I think, like I said, you're going to see, you're going to, what you are going to see. We got a politician this, on our hands. What you are going to see out of this from the standpoint of landlords, I think, is a much more aggressive um, interest from them in partnering up with companies like ours, as opposed to historically, even leading up to like as late as last year, those conversations were really falling on deaf ears because you had very low vacancies and they were seeing big growth in their NERs without really taking any kind of, you know, like a, a non-traditional stance on the, the landlord-tenant relationship as it relates to flex space. Mm -hmm. uh, and now 
they're under a lot of pressure because I think they realize like maybe your first Canadian place is going to be okay or your trophy asset in your urban center. But if you have maybe if you have a yeah, maybe, but it, it, some I think ways for sure, have been not maybe there's no question your urban centers, your trophy assets are going to do just fine in the long run. You're right. I, I'm a little worried about like the B and C class assets, even in the good locations, especially in the wave of all of this new supply that's coming online in a lot of our major urban markets where it happened last the last time in like the financial crisis coming out of it. There was a lot of the same conversations around, well, where's all the where's all the backfill going to come from? And it got it got absorbed through growth and through existing tenants, you know, the banks and, and larger companies absorbing a lot of that space. I don't know if there's that storyline of backfill this time around. There's far more new supply coming, and it's in the face of a pandemic where you already have a bunch of existing sublease inventory sitting out there, and not a lot of clarity on like what the storyline is going to be to absorb a lot of that vacancy that's coming. So. I don't. I'm not smart enough to know what the future holds on that front. But I think the trophy assets, going back to the original point, will be just fine. Uh, and the the B and C class asset owners are going to have to get creative. Well, before we move on from from office space, I do want. I, I would love to get your opinion on 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 WeWork. Uh, has it negatively impacted people's view of of your business? No. Good. Uh, <laughs> on the whole, I th- well, I, I shouldn't say no. I think. Most of the people that I speak to uh, who have a have a fairly high knowledge of the WeWork situation, they're knowledgeable about what happened to WeWork. And frankly, um, I think the biggest problem with WeWork was SoftBank um, because they were uh, essentially they were told to go faster and get bigger and be crazier and. Um, and they valued them as a tech startup, not as a real estate play. Which yeah, I think SoftBank 100%. made that mistake. And that, that well, SoftBank recognized that it's extremely difficult to deploy capital. This, this is a very capital-intensive business. Very difficult to deploy capital at scale across the world and achieve revenue growth the way he was doing it. He was doing a reasonably good job of doing what he was doing. Right. But then you get this multi-billionaire coming and giving you many billions and saying, who wins in a fight? The smart guy or the crazy guy? And he goes, the crazy guy. And yeah. Massive Sun's like, yeah, but you're not being crazy enough. Be crazier. Like, <laughs> if you have that kind yeah. of guy coming to you and saying, you are, the, you are the Jesus Christ of real estate. Like, you should just keep doing what you're doing. And if anybody, I remember I read this thing about, I think there's a book coming out about Adam Newman. And it talks about when they were going through their hyper growth. And I think it was right after or right before, it was maybe right after they'd taken the first tranche of cash from, from SoftBank or right before they got it. But basically, Howard Schultz called Adam Newman and said, just come out, to my, uh, come out to my office and I'd like to talk to you about your business. It's very exciting what you're doing, whatever. So he goes out there and essentially Schultz told him, I went through a very significant thing or similar thing to what you guys are going through now, but it was like hyperscaling before it was even a term. And it was, I was adding Starbucks left and right and we were just growing like gangbusters all over the world. And he's like, I wish somebody at that time had told me to stop growing, sit down and refine my operation make sure my sales and sales team and infrastructure are strong, make sure wow. my operating team is strong and they can absorb all this growth that I'm adding. He's like, if I had done that, I would have saved myself about five years of heartache and many millions of dollars of shareholder value being lost uh, for this public company. And on the flight back home on their private jet, Adam Newman basically reflected on the meeting with all of the senior executives and goes, fuck that. Come on. 
It's wow. a closing chapter of a book that is coming out about their story. But it's indicative of the fact that he was given fuel to feel like he was smarter than anybody. Well, he was given, I mean, SoftBank had had a number of very successful investments as well, right? So I think they were coming off of a couple, of, I don't know if you want to call them Grand Slam home runs, but I think they were. And they saw this as the next Grand Salami with cheese. And uh, I think when you have that confidence behind you, you do feel like you're God or you're the Jesus Christ of real estate and you're going to go, anything you touch is going to turn to gold and more dollars. Um, so I, again, just to reiterate Ben's question, you've, you've obviously learned a lot probably from that story, but it hasn't had any negative effect on your business other than maybe some of the stigma associated with that and, and shared office. Yeah, I mean, there's that stigma again. I think most people know the story intimately, that it wasn't so much a failed business model as it was just a, 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 they got over their skis a little bit. They right. went too fast and they were growing too quickly. And the financial press, especially if you're looking to go public, uh, they needed a lot better explanation of the business. And when you read their S1, it was not very well done. I heard that. Like to say the least. So where so, are they now? What's I don't even know. Not to get off topic too much, but I mean, this I, COVID cannot have helped. Whatever, you know, yeah. I think COVID has basically put ice on most growth in the context of office space. Yeah. Um, you know, they've had some leadership, <coughs> excuse me, leadership change uh, in, in Canada. I, I know Canada a little, know Canada a little bit better than, um, than the rest of the world, obviously, but um I don't know where they're at. I don't know. They're, yeah. they're again. They're not a public company, so you can't really see their financials right. in, in detail. Interesting. Well, I'm I'm a res guy, so I, I you know I know nothing about the office market, and uh, and we don't, let's let's move away from the the COVID stuff, and maybe let's talk about what I've heard you describe as your passion project. So tell me a little bit about uh, Lanescape and how you got involved in that initiative. Yeah, yeah. I guess it goes back to that dream or desire to be a developer. Um, but after I moved to Toronto, I lived in a condo with uh, a roommate for a number of years um, before meeting my now wife. Um, but the guy that I was living with for a number of years was an undergraduate student in architecture, and he was a buddy through a friend, and we basically just became close. Uh, and we were sharing a condo, um, and we were not. We 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 would followed a little bit about what was going on in Vancouver. And in 2008, Vancouver passed essentially a legal framework throughout some of their neighborhoods to entitle laneway housing as of right. Um, and we were interested in this. We we obviously living in Toronto and and kind of riding bikes and commuting through the laneways. We saw the opportunity here, uh, and so I. I just sort of said to him, jokingly almost, um, you know, I'm going to find a site. I'm going to build one of these things, and we're going to figure this out. Uh, and then he actually went off to Portland. My wife moved into the plate. My now wife, like, moved into our condo. And he was doing his graduate degree in Portland um, in architecture. And he ended up moving back, got a job. And by this point, I was getting close to getting married. And I found a site out in the East End just off Jones Avenue which was a triplex and the garage, which was like a larger than normal concrete cinder block garage, uh, had been illegally converted into a three bedroom, one bathroom dwelling unit. Um, had a side yard driveway, so it was a wide lot. It was 33 by 120 with a laneway in the back. Um, and I, you know, it was perfect. I was like, this is perfect. So I was, I got it under contract, acquired it in November of 2011. Um, my, my buddy and I, um, 
drank a bottle of Jack Daniels Black and designed it in one night, basically. Beautiful. And uh, we <laughs> we literally we filed an application um, like very shortly after I closed on the property. We went to C of A in April of 2012. Um, the city basically like I had informed them that I was looking to take this existing condition and have it inspected and legalized and make it safe because it was it was in disrepair let's put it that way and having never been inspected it had shoddy electrical and it wasn't very safe and basically the city said no it's a garage and I said well it's not a garage it's a, it's a dwelling unit you've put a there's hydrometer right here there's a gas meter right here like there's the utility companies know this is a thing and they're like well as far as we're concerned this is a garage and it's if you apply for anything other than a garage it's it's a dwelling unit or a house behind a house and that's bad planning policy it's against the official plan principles and we don't support that so I went to C of A as like a let's say novice at best developer um, with a serious serious uh, hurdle in the context of a planning letter serious chip saying, on your shoulder saying no um, but the plan was so good and the fact that it was an, an existing condition uh, I was fortunate that the committee agreed with me and they said yeah approve so I, I wanted a committee two to one and I got my variances site-specific, built the, built the laneway suite, so I added a half floor on it, so it's now a 1,800-square-foot, one-and-a-half-story, two-bedroom dwelling unit. Um, the services come from the front house, so through the basement apartment, as they did before. Um, it's not severed, so it sits on one property, as it did before. The garbage and all of the mail and the pizza guy all come from the front, down the side, as they did before. So this all existed mm. just as it was before, but it was when you took it through the city's process to make it legal, they basically said, no, it's illegal. So that became the framework of, of landscape. It was, well, how can this be illegal? And we yeah. started looking into it. A guy named Adam Giambroni, who was a counselor back in the mid-2000s, he had commissioned a study, asked planning and tech services to look into the viability of laneway housing. And they came back with a, with a, a report that basically said, no, we don't support it for these reasons. And the reasons were there's no services in laneways, so to get services down, you have to chop the laneways up and dis like disrupt access, can't have that. Okay, well, let's service them from the front. And then, well, you can't sever. This will create like twice as many houses on half the sizes of the lots, and it'll create terrible planning precedent. Uh, okay, well, non-severable, right? And we'll, you know, access and, okay, well, you need some regulations around access and, and making sure that for fire and life safety, you can support emergency services and that kind of thing. So all of these little things were kind of right there in the open. And the, the, the ultimate thing was that the, um, the Planning Act, so provincial policy, literally had stipulated that all municipalities have to adopt a framework for secondary suites to be allowed. So the, the, the planning policy was already in place where the province had said something that the municipalities had to adopt, but oftentimes there's nobody at the municipalities tasked with looking at what the, what the province is saying. Um, so that became the linchpin of our argument when we were hmm. in front of planning. And we held three consultations, one east, one west, and then one central at Evergreen, partnered up with Evergreen, um, the organization, to kind of write that initial report. And that report, with the help of two councillors, um, went in front of Toronto and East York Council. It was adopted. And then a year later, it was adopted citywide. And so now you have an as-of-right entitlement similar to BC, um, that permits laneway housings, provided you have the right access and, and site requirements. Um, and 
it's it's a pretty cool story in the sense that it's a, it was a grassroots initiative where yeah. just some people started talking to other people who started talking to other people. Our, our citywide consultation, like we had overflow at Evergreen, we couldn't we couldn't house as many people who were interested in it. And we had like three thousand or thirty five hundred respondents to a online survey that we that we hosted to kind of crowdsource ideas around if you're if you like this what do you like if you're worried what are you worried about so you've you've done you you've i, I believe if my memory serves me correctly you recently sold jones so that was sort of the end of it no you haven't sold it so you still own it we sold one on off the danforth i believe yeah logan logan right okay that's what i was thinking so you still own that it's a rental property you have tenants in the main structure and then tenants in the laneway and it's all operating and running smoothly no issues and they pay their utilities and it's pretty clean. Yeah, it's uh, it's turned into a terrific investment. I was um, I was pretty hell bent on keeping it. I didn't want to sell it, and I was fortunate enough to uh, you know to to be able to hold on to it and buy the house that we live in now. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's it's yeah it's ticking along. It's it's always full. I've got great tenants in the front. There's three units in the front, so like second floor, main floor, and basement all have their own dedicated entrances. Um, all have their own outdoor space, and then obviously the uh, the laneway suite is like a, it's like a, a house in the backyard so it it's uh it's a family that's living in there um they've got five car parking they've got a terrace wow. um so it's a good setup for them and um i'm hoping to to, to do scale more. it up and so do tell more. us about what the plans are for to do more i know you bought another triplex a couple months ago and you said you've bought another one since then or i don't know if it's a triplex or not is it yeah we have uh, we bought we bought a couple of properties to launch a new investment um, opportunity around the laneway housing typology uh, so one is a single family home um, with a obviously a garage in the backyard that can be intensified for a 1300 square foot plus a basement wow. uh, two-story laneway suite Beautiful. and then I bought a site on Grange um, just uh, west of the AGO which is okay. a purpose-built triplex on a 142 foot deep lot which again will support an as of right roughly 1250 square foot uh, two-story suite. That one's pretty cool just because of the the vintage of the house. It's an yeah. older one of those older brick semis. And how are lenders looking at this as a, as a lender? I I'm interested uh, the kind of feedback you're getting from the banks. I mean, it's very early days, admittedly. Um, my experience with Jones is my best sort of experience in terms of how these things will ultimately get viewed. Uh, and at first, the, the lenders didn't understand it, right? They're like, well, we, we, what do you mean? Where's the house? What do you mean the there's house? two houses? They said the house is cedar. It's, it's stucco. I'm like, that's the front house. So you, you kind of really <laughs> had to walk them through the logistics of it. And again, this was before there was an entitlement as of right. So they really cared about, like, is this is this legal? Like, have you gotten permits for this? Yes, I have permits. Here are my <laughs> permits. Okay. Nah. Uh, well, can you, like, have you had this appraised? No, that's, you know, isn't that your job? Okay, well, we'll get an appraisal. First guy appraised it. It was a joke. Like, he didn't know what he was doing. And I just said, I'm like, no, this is wrong. In fairness I'm not, to him, I'm not doing probably this. his first one. Yeah, well, maybe. So I just told them, get the next guy in, because this is this is not right. Like, just on every metric, this makes no sense. Just as a, I, I remember at one point you were talking about cap rates and, and valuing these based on income in place and capping that income. Is that, is that how you believe the best way to value these things are? I think it depends on the situation. Because I remember you've, you, I also had a house on Jones, and you were telling me about a cap rate on income, and your house was worth like four times the amount of mine <laughs> based on... Well, in that what, case, what? I had two houses. You only have one. Well, you had like one and a quarter. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing, right? <laughs> no, like, 
Like at the end of the day, this is how I look at it. It appraised for a certain number and I got a loan to value based on that appraisal. Um, it, you know better than me, Steve, about lenders and how different parties look at things very differently, even when it's the same asset, same income stream, same covenant. Um, so all right I'm saying now, is it's very rare for a residential appraisal to use a, a to cap income on a rental property. Yeah, Usually they look, at, they look at, comps, at appraised value whatever, or comps, that's it, yeah. right? So that's that's the that's kind of where I'm going with it. And so on an appraised value basis, there's like a variety of ways to look at it. The challenge we have if you're trying to if you're trying to go out and say to an investor like I'm going to pay you this return based on this sale price is there's no there's no sales yet. These are a yeah. lot of these haven't even been delivered and finished. But yeah. what we are seeing in terms of the rents that they're generating, they're getting significant premiums to even the new condo stock that are being delivered in arguably better from a transit connection standpoint, like like significant premiums per square foot on rents. What are you seeing per foot on rents there? Significant premiums. If the if the average in the city call it is three fifty in the neighborhoods, we're seeing well into the fours wow. per square foot. Wow. Ben, the yeah, rental I mean, guy, I, what do you think about that? I mean, that's awesome. I mean, we uh, there's uh, um, on Girard, there's a, a couple houses that are like perfect for, you know, redevelopment. Uh, and I've been keeping my eyes on on them to see if any of them come up for sale. Um, but I see in my Instagram feed always uh, the our house guys, and they have a kind of a, a um, you know a modular solution or a, solu- it's a, like a, a laneway or a laneway six, solution. Yeah. Is is modular possible? Is 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 there something we can just you know, you know come up with that can just plop down on the lot that doesn't have to be customized that uh, that that can be done on scale? Yeah, I mean, I think. The way we're looking at things is is this is an innovative type of housing, and so there's definitely going to be opportunities for there to be innovative solutions around the delivery. Um, there are a few constraints to prefab, especially in the context of like big prefab. A lot of people talk about like shipping container houses and um, and you know driving a, essentially a fully assembled product on site and just plopping it down. Um, oftentimes these are in mature neighborhoods with mature tree canopies and really tight laneways and you know access for a crane is just non-existent. Um, so realistically I think in one of the like I'm, I'm I've met uh, the guys at our house a few times, and, and I know George pretty well and Leith, and they're good guys, and they're they're trying to be innovative and lead the charge. I think the, the I was actually just I walked around their site on Queen Street East on the because they have a mid-rise typology yeah. they're yeah. exploring with this panel system, which I think is like a it's actually manufactured out of Europe, um, and they're That's just bringing fine. it in and it's assembling it. It's unbelievable how quickly it's going out. Yeah. Oh. yeah, and they're they have a product for the laneway as well. Um, so I think there will be a time where you start to see more panelization in the laneways and. What's cool about the the changing lanes initiative in the city of Toronto is it's a fixed, it's a pretty fixed, pretty rigid form. So, uh, you know, you're capped in terms of your max footprint, eight meters by ten meters. You're capped in terms of your max height. Um, in general, these are all being built on the same sort of structural foundations. Um, so, you, I believe, there is an opportunity to start to create some consistency in some of the assemblies and and drive certainly drive production timelines down. Whether you're going to drive cost savings is, is, is a real question mark at this point. Um, but we're, you know, we're, we're going to be building out our construction division next year and starting to build these and, and try to kind of own some of that innovation uh, on, on a go-forward basis. Just because, again, like, um, as we start to get scale, we're starting to see 
challenges on the on the supply side with respect to guys who can who can build these. Yeah. There, um, must, there must be a lot of. Um, I'd love to see the numbers because they're not huge, right? So the numbers aren't big in terms of total costs. You're not creating efficiencies because I assume you're not doing two or three beside each other. I mean, maybe down the road you will be, but I imagine in the beginning you're doing one-offs. So you're not getting any economies of scale. Is there money to be made in these? Is it like, I mean, you're creating... Value yeah, to the yeah, I'm curious what the payback is. Like yeah, if, I, if I spend 450000 on one of these things, you know, is it cash flow year one? Like what's, yeah. Yeah. I mean, you got to recognize that in every situation here, you're getting your land for free. So um, if that's how you want to no look such, at there's it. There's no such thing as free land, Alex. <laughs> yeah, I understand. <laughs> or right? a free lunch. But let's just use, let's use your old house as an example, Steve. And I know you said you just sold it. Congratulations. But if your old Thank house you. was on a laneway, let's just say you my bought house it on in, Jones was on a laneway. We can use that one as an example. Yeah, that's a, that's a bad example because I know what you paid for it, and it's it's a different reality. <laughs> um, but let, like, let's just use the, the prime example. I'll, I'll give you the example of uh, the Eaton Project. Okay, so detached what house. That? What one? That's the one we just bought for landscape. Okay, okay? so detached house. Yeah. Um, Danforth and Pape area, about 150 yards from the subway stop. Um, narrow lot, older home, unfinished basement, two-bedroom home. So uh, not very big, but opportunity to potentially improve that home over time. But right away in the back, you can build a laneway suite, call it 1,350 square feet. We'll just assume no basement because that adds some cost and complexity both on the rents and on the costs going in. Um, in general, we're seeing between 250 and 300 bucks a foot to build these. So, And that's, again, assuming you're not adding very, very high-end finishes, but you're also not building a low-caliber so like low product. You're 90 grand to build it. No, that's wrong. 1,300 feet. You're more like, you know, 325,000 to build it. 1,350 times, call it 275. Sorry, yeah, yeah. Yeah. All right. It's like three, three to 350. All right. So yep. just use 350. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so that laneway suite, and then and if you assume you're, you're renting rent it for that at 350 a foot. No, no, you said 450. So no, I didn't say 450. I said you're pushing <laughs> into the fours. But say uh, our I forecasts are saying we're probably going to get low to mid 4,000s a month in rent. Okay. They're going to pay their utilities on top. So you're, you know, assuming you're getting, call it 75% of that falls to the bottom line NOI. It's probably more than that, realistically, because again, you're... Yeah. Your taxes and operating costs on these is pretty low. It's brand new product. It's standalone, so it's a detached house in terms of a rental profile. You walk out your door, and in a, you know, in four minutes, you're at the subway. Um, it's attractive for sure. So the yield is there. Absolutely. The blended yield. It's not like you're averaging up considerably because you again, your land is inherent in the front. So, you know, if you can get the front house to a three and a half to four cap. Yeah. Um, and generally, that's like right away. It doesn't take too much in the way of improvements. And then you add the back at a eight to twelve cap. Um, you're, you're creating a pretty, pretty attractive blended return. And it's against neighborhood-oriented, well-located, amenity-rich, multi-res in Toronto. And are you building a garage, an above a garage, or you're no parking for these for these people? Every case is different, Ben. So um, a lot of times people don't want the garage, but if they have sufficient depth in the yard, they can actually set the laneway house back from the from the laneway itself. And then you create essentially a parking space with either an overhang from the second floor or just you know completely open to the elements. Okay. Um, sometimes people want to preserve a full-on covered enclosed garage space. And then oftentimes they'll have like a little vestibule beside, or if they have sufficient width in the property, they can build like a little home office downstairs with a staircase 
space up to a living space and a garage. There's a variety of circumstances, right? So sometimes homeowners want to keep the whole property for themselves. Sometimes they want to section off the back and rent it out and keep the garage for themselves. Sometimes they don't have a car and they just want to maximize rental income and develop the whole back as a completely separate house. Um, so it's, it's really a function of the, the end user and or the, the homeowner and what their objectives are. Yeah. You're obviously creating a, a pretty sweet little niche business for yourself. And going back to the, uh, the uh, co-working space and trying to forecast out five years, obviously, we, we agree that's very difficult. But I think if, if, if I was to ask you to look forward five years in the laneway business, where do you see yourself? How many of these assets would you like to own? Um, and how would that business be running? Hmm. Well, we're doing some strategic planning right now, so I don't have a definitive answer for you, but I definitely, we, we sort of attribute it to a snowball. Um, and when we started, we had the upper hand on everybody because we helped sort of craft the, the consultations and hear all of the objections and sort of, you know, pay close attention and frankly work our tails off for a number yeah. of years pro bono to help craft this policy. So we've got an upper hand in terms of understanding which sites qualify and what you can do on, on the sites that do qualify. Um, and so we're starting to see more and more people call us and now we're starting to deliver some products so people can actually walk into the laneways and see the built form. And that's driving uh, more adoption in our services business, but I think what's really going to snowball is when we start to invest directly and create some of these for our own account on a rental basis and hopefully start to push some lenders to, uh, to get creative and to try to keep up with the opportunity because there's no question it's there. It's just a different form, a different typology, and um, you're right. Like the, the economies of scale are difficult to garner right off the bat, but um, you know, in, in five years' time, I, my hope and prediction is that we will still be a market leader. There's going to be hundreds of, of deliveries completed by that time, and it's going to be much more... Uh, much more well-known and well-understood throughout the city, which is ultimately our goal. Is the idea to buy the asset, do the reno, put in a portfolio and rent it out? Or is the idea to be hired by a homeowner who has a laneway who wants to take advantage of the extra space? Or is it a combination of both? Combination of both. Okay. And then my next question on top after that is for the assets that you own, is the, uh, going back again, I'll, I'll use another uh, comparison to co-working. What about co-living? Any thoughts on co-living space in particular? We can talk about Airbnb, but I know co-living as a separate sector is, is also was taking off pre-COVID. Any thoughts on, uh, on those two markets? I think co-living um, makes a lot of sense for certain demographics. Um, I think that it's inevitable, um, very similar to co-working, shared office, flex office, serviced office, I think all real estate is going to be pressured in the future to deliver a better and uh, more frictionless experience for the end user, whether that's a, a long-term tenant, big corporation, or you're just a, a residential occupier, renter, um, and everything in between. I think the... If you look at hotels, like the, the evolution of the hotel business from the 1910s, 1920s to today is essentially a precursor in my mind to what we're starting, just starting to see in some other asset classes. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think, I think if you fast forward, I don't, I'm nowhere near clever enough to see a hundred years ahead, but like <laughs> 10 years ahead, um, you're going to be able to get a far greater variety of asset types and you're going to be able to access them across a spectrum of budget. 
Um, and you're going to be paying a premium per square foot, but you're going to get a way higher utility and you derive a much better experience out of the spend. Um, and you're seeing that, like, whether it's gyms, whether it's, you know, hotels, restaurants, malls and retail, office space, um, hospitality. Yeah. Every one of them is, like, the consumer has never been smarter, they've never been more tech-enabled, and they've never been more um, specific about their wants and needs. Yes, yeah, so my my idea was to do a Airbnb laneway suite because I'm I don't know if anyone follows me on Instagram out there, uh, Big Ben Myers. Um, <laughs> I take a lot of street I take a lot of street art pics, so I would love to have uh, an Airbnb laneway suite that's completely uh, street art and graffiti with Toronto theme stuff to uh, you know to get people to come and uh, come back and use it. But uh, I'm not sure if there was a question there or not. But uh, well, we, I think you did ask about. I am curious uh, about Airbnb. In, in particular with the laneways if you so are people doing that is that do you see that the way of the future in some ways or because now that you can't do an airbnb in a on an investment exactly. it has to be your primary residence right exactly well i I'm, I'm assuming you can charge a premium for airbnb versus a month-to-month renter i know that the uh the legislation was under appeal through this past summer, I think. So they had proposed legislation around Airbnb, and it was under appeal. So it never actually took root, even though a lot of people thought it was in force. Um, but I think it actually did pass. I'm yeah, not I think it was in September. Sure, yeah, I think now you have to now you have to register. You have to pay a fee, uh, and yeah, it has to. It can't be your primary residence. But so under that assumption that it has passed, and again, I'm no expert on this, but I believe the rule said that you're not even allowed to rent. So let's say that you have a basement apartment at your house and it's attached to your house and it's your primary residence. I believe if it's a basement apartment, you're prevented from putting it on Airbnb. You're only allowed to rent rooms in your primary residence. And the rationale is a basement apartment should be permanent housing stock and it should be accessible to permanent uh, needs uh, because again of this low vacancy environment, we're in this low supply environment. I don't. I, I believe that's the case, and oh, yeah. in which case, any laneway house would fall under that. Like this should be long-term housing, no Airbnb allowed. Interesting, interesting. Well, let's 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 move on to the the next uh, kind of area of of business of yours. Um, I know you've came to me with a couple sites that you've been you, you looked at at Hamilton. Are you getting into the multifamily business? Are you uh, getting into the condo business, single-family business? What's 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 the next step for uh, for Mr. Alex? Yeah, I mean, I'm. Uh, I, I have a real estate investment business, um, and so my my partners and I uh, own like real estate um, in a variety of sort of uh, sizes and shapes, um, and we're always looking for value add opportunities, right? So the the Hamilton stuff was just that. I, I'm not a I'm not a builder. I don't I don't develop um, high rise product by any stretch, but. I do not like, yet. Not I, yet. I do like to uh, keep my eyes open to opportunity, um, and I've I've just through my general interest and background, you know, in school, I've um, I've been fortunate enough to meet some people uh, in the business and learn along the way how it works and and how you can uh, create some value in the land side in particular. Um, 
so we, you know, we have a couple of sites where there's some long-term opportunity to, to do that kind of value creation. Uh, we're pursuing a few opportunities right now presently on that basis um, in variety of settings. And again, in every situation, it's generally like a longer-term play where you've got near-term problems and or tenants to deal with or work out or a strategy to develop and then plan and try to execute from a zoning perspective at the city level. Uh, so we're doing, you know, that's an interest. It's similar to laneway housing, but in a much different scale and, and form and often much more uh, painful. <laughs> um, but it, it's an interest of mine. Uh, and I mean, I'm looking at a variety of things in this world, like the opportunities seem to be growing steadily. Um, I've, I just put an offer in on like a hospitality operating business play. Uh, I'm looking at some some tech investment opportunities around like existing businesses that are at the early stages where I see some real nice. value in the in the technology. And I think it's just it goes back to kind of like a, a desire to just be curious and pay close attention to what what's going on in the market and uh, and just try to have fun and, and create value and do good projects. Yeah. You're, you're bullish on Hamilton. You like Hamilton? I mean, I was much more bullish in 2016 <laughs> or whatever when this was going back to Ben. I think um, there's been some, you know, there's been a lot of uh, Hamilton's sort of been found and um, I, there's definitely opportunity there. There's no question about it. I, I like Brad's comment that, you know, like it's, it's a real city. You go there and it's got grit and it's got, it's got unique built form and history and character and, yeah. Um, and obviously, like the evolution of the restaurant scene and and uh, the food culture there is huge. And um, I definitely think in in twenty years time, Hamilton's going to be an incredible, incredibly different place and uh, and look a lot different than than it does today. Um, but it's not an area I'm focused on right now. I don't have any sites under consideration per yeah. se right now. Interesting. See. Um, What's next for, for, I mean, obviously, Mr. Sharp, but in terms of the IQ office space, are, are you, uh, is this the focus? Is this the main business for you? Or is it, you know, maybe put this on the back burner and focus on the red stuff for a while, go after the, the laneway stuff? Or is it, hey, maybe we put that on, a, on pause because there's no real long-term uh, I mean, I guess there, there is scalability there, but um, you know, may, maybe I maybe I need to. Just, I just have to prove it to you, Steve. That's I, all. I, I'm, I'm waiting for it. But is or is it? You know, I got to go back to the, the brokerage days. Seems like you got you got your hand in a lot of pots right now. I'm just I'm curious as to what your focus is going to be uh, come January 2021. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm fortunate at this point in my career to have. Uh, I have a couple things going for me. I've got really good partners uh, who understand me pretty well and know where I bring value and, and where I need help. Um, and in terms of my focus, like one of my biggest areas of focus outside of development, and I, I put an asterisk around development in, in, for a reason I'll get back to in a minute. My area of focus these days is on team building. So. Cool. Uh, you know, whether you're putting together a team of consultants on a project specific basis, or we are like crafting divisions inside of this operating business that require like very specific skill sets and resources deployed to those skill sets in this time of limited resources. Uh, you know, I focus a lot on kind of staying connected with the team around me and then the team around me is connected to all of my business interests. And so I'm just trying to stay out of the way when I'm not going to add any value and make sure that I'm readily, readily available at any time of day, nights, weekends, doesn't really matter to, um, to kind of assist where I can bring value. And yeah. 
Um, none of the businesses are on hold by any stretch. That's great. Um, you know, IQ, like my area of focus is on growing the platform. So how we grow the platform and the types of deals we look at and, and how we structure those deals is going to look different in 2021 than it did in 2019, no question. Uh, but I think we're actually going to be well positioned to grow faster in the long run over a 10-year basis than we would have been in the 2019 model. Mm -hmm. Uh, and I think we're fortunate to have, you know, some really good friends and colleagues in the industry who recognize that like Alex is getting hammered by COVID, but (laughs) like in the long run, he's providing a good service. And when people come back, the tenants will come back and hopefully we can, you know, we can add, add some locations and add a number of desks and provide even more. I think there's a real opportunity to get some sweetheart deals out there for you. You know, there's going to be in the short term, some vacant space, I think potentially, you know, there may be some big accounting firms or law firms who walk from some pretty prestigious space in some of the towers and the landlords are looking for a quick solution. And if you're there to pick it up, you get a pretty sweetheart deal for the first three to five years. I'm sure that's on your mind. Yeah, we are we're thinking very carefully about the best way to position ourselves to align with the landlords and make sure that like uh, they're they're receiving their fair share of success and upside in the good times and that, you know, everybody's uh, doing our best to protect ourselves and mitigate uh, the downside, which, you know, this crisis has proven like there's always a shoe to drop, right? Like all of the senior guys around me for the last 10 years have been saying like, you only have seen good times. Like you're so (laughs) bullish, you're so optimistic and they're right. But I was also, it's not lost on me that this business is, it's not rocket science. This is a supply and demand business. And we had a fixed and, and relatively limited supply and we had robust and growing demand because we live in an awesome place and we have very progressive and intelligent immigration policies. And in general, those things haven't turned off. I mean, I, I, you might have actually said it on a podcast recently, but something like 270 of 300,000 people are waiting <laughs> yeah, to get, me. get on the plane. <laughs> uh, and I buy into that. I believe that. I think, that, I, think that, I think that our country is one of the greatest places in the world. And uh, for all its faults, um, there's a lot more, there's a, there's a huge net benefit. Um, and when this is over, it's still going to be a relative test. So like relatively speaking, how is Canada looking economically, politically, you're socially, right. no, structurally right. from the rest of the world? And I think we're going to be looking pretty, pretty good in the long run. I agree. I got a quick question. Would, would, would this type of model work on a really small scale? Like if, if, you know, if you had, uh, you know, three vacant retail storefronts in a, in an area, could you take those three and and make them like a pop-up IQ? The short answer is uh, usually not. Um, and the reason is, especially if you branded IQ, there's an expectation of the service and caliber of, of service delivery and space that people are going to get. So, uh, the economies of scale often don't work if you have a certain number of people at the front desk and tech support and, and you know, technology overlays and white noise and, you know, commercial grade furniture. You, usually you need a minimum of 10,000 square feet to make that work under our traditional model. If the landlord's uh, driving decisions uh, aren't necessarily return, like on that one space, let's say they have a mall where this space is empty and they strategically want to have that, that flexibility or that serviced office, they might not be looking to drive a higher NER. And so it might work for them. Um, but usually, no, you can't just slap these things anywhere and do pop-ups because you can't deliver the caliber of service and the quality of offering that, 
people come to expect. Yeah, no, listen, it's this has been a great conversation. You've got a lot going on, and it's uh, it's very interesting. But we do often like to end, as you know, as a frequent listener with a bit of a rapid-fire question. I'm going to kick it off with a sports question because, unfortunately, for all of us sports fans, there's no hockey or no basketball in the middle of, or I guess it's the end of October or going into November. It feels very odd. I don't know about you. but Yesterday just, was the last baseball last game of the year. Last night was the last baseball game. Everything's weird. The Masters is in November. But. <laughs> we got football. We got one one undefeated team in the Steelers left. Are you a football Not guy? Not really, Steve. Unfortunately, I don't follow it closely. So my from if it's a st- statistical question, I'm going to let you down. <laughs> well, my question was, who's your early call or early prediction for the Super Bowl? <laughs> yeah, the Buffalo Bills. Yeah, wow, Bills versus Tampa Bay. Progressive. Nice answer, Ben. Take it away. It All is right. sad though. We got All right. we're, we're, we're sports. Now, so in the rapid fire, you know, you can be yes or no. You can, you know, we're we're trying to keep the the answers to less than 10, 15 seconds. But feel free to just no, and we'll go on to the next one or yes. Should we allow four stories as of right everywhere in the city of Toronto? That's a complicated question, Ben. We should overhaul our entire zoning bylaw so that it's not totally broken. Perfect. Should every new development on the avenues have retail at grade? No. Agree. Would you rather own uh, either apartment or or your office space beside a university or a hospital? Uh, would I rather place an IQ beside a university or a hospital? Yeah. Uh, that's an interesting question. Um, I would probably say a university. Should pre-construction condo investors be allowed to resell their units prior to closing? Yes. What do we have on here? Um, oh, I, oh, this is the one I always, always, I like to ask people. What percentage? And this is a math question. What percentage <laughs> of your success do you attribute to good luck? This is a Guy Raz question. Um, I would say that it is in the neighborhood of fifty. Fifty. Oh, okay. Uh, granite countertops. Or quartz countertops. Which do you prefer? Probably quartz. <laughs> it's a strange question. <laughs> you got you touting a new sponsor? That was good, Ben. <laughs> we just, we, we, it's fun. Yeah, I, I just I like, I like to ask fun I questions. Like so. <laughs> okay, here's another one. Do you prefer architecture that respects the character of the neighborhood, or do you like the juxtaposition of modern architecture? I like good architecture so good architecture i think is going to complement the neighborhood but still introduce contemporary or new processes materials techniques Uh, but i think there's many examples where you see modern architecture and it does not look good Um, so modern for the sake of being modern is probably not good design that is a good answer though that's good for a second i thought you were copying out but then you were covered we're sitting at uh, King and University. A lot of big law firms around here. A lot of big accounting firms as well. And a lot of these lawyers like to charge themselves out on an hourly basis. If you were a billable guy, just say you had to charge yourself out, what would you be charging per hour? <laughs> not enough. <laughs> That's a good answer. That's not a good answer. <laughs> um anyone out there any other developers obviously you're 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 active in going to these social events and stuff any other developers you're kind of jealous of that you really appreciate what they're doing out there 
I try to avoid jealousy. I don't think it's a really productive uh, emotion. I have a lot of respect for Shemez uh, and the guys over at Center Court. Um, I think they've been just laser focused and they've built an incredible business. And I know uh, one of their, like a, one of their friends and early partners, Joe Nestick, was a, is a good friend and mentor of mine. Um, I don't know. There's a lot of guys in the industry that are around our demographic that are just good people doing fun projects and and trying to make the city a better place and i have a lot of res- i have a lot of respect for those guys and i have a lot of faith in our business and in not only in this city but in the country i think we're doing some awesome stuff and um you know there's a bunch of just great people that we get to kind of call contemporaries and friends and um we're, we're pretty, we're pretty an lucky. esteemed company in this city when it comes to real estate development. Yeah, I, I love some of the stuff some of the young guys are, are doing in our industry. I just think of, you know, back when I was working at Urban Nation and Matt Young said, hey, let's go to lunch. I'd love to, like, pick your brain. You know, I'm working at this family company. Shout out, and, Matt Young. Uh, you know, I'm working at this young company. Shout I, out uh, Public <laughs> Development. <laughs> yeah. Shout out you, you know, and to think, yeah, he's doing this amazing um, new new site in, in uh, you know, Scarborough, and he, I'm loving and all the renderings that he's putting out on Instagram and Twitter about what Did he's trying do to do there. you a study for him? Ben? I have not. Yeah, come on, man. <laughs> you know, one of the things actually, and Alex, um, you mentioned this before, a lot of older, uh, I don't know if you call them mentors or, or just people in the industry who say you've never been through a downturn, you've never seen the down cycles, you've never seen the bad. And you're right. I, I hear I've heard it all the, all the time, especially through the last few months. Just being in the lending business, a lot of my investors are in their 60s or 70s, and they've been two or three, four cycles of of, of the bad. Um, but you know, there's something to be said for not being tainted with that and being young and just being aggressive and being like, listen, I'm just going to go for it. Yeah, I could lose everything. Yeah, there could be a downturn. Yeah, there, you know, the whole world could blow up, or it couldn't. And this could also work out. And I think that, you know, the city is full of young, energetic people who are like, let's, let's just do this and see what happens. And I think if we didn't have that, if everyone was, you know, that's, that's part of the balance in our culture. You know, we have mentors, we have elders that we look up to. And, and then, you know, some of the young folk just have to grab the bull by the horns and say, let's go. Yeah. I mean, I've been fortunate enough to, <clears throat> a lot of people look especially like friends that are kind of on the periphery, they look and they think like, oh, your career's just been a straight shot of success. And it's like, literally I've done maybe three of every hundred deals I've seen. Yeah. And, and I've probably tried 10 of the hundred I've seen and the six I've lost, at least three or four of those six have gone on to be home runs. And so for me, it's, it's helped reinforce the confidence that I've just bred over the 16 years, 15 mm-hmm. years of working hard in the business, uh, whereby you, you can see that like sometimes you hear all the no's and the no's are coming from the most credible places and you feel fundamentally convicted that it's a good idea or it's a good strategy and the tenants will be there or the rates you're going to achieve will, will make sense and they'll, they'll, it'll derive a good outcome. And especially early on in my career, I mean, I was just like I was piecing together, you know, two pennies. Yeah. So I was totally at the whim of other people's uh, feelings. And most of the time, I'm like, I'm still connected to those people. So it's it's good in a sense. I could be like, remember that one? Remember that one? Remember that one? Remember that one? <laughs> the old I told you so, eh? <laughs> no, it's more just, it's not I told you so. It's just like when I have another opportunity for you, maybe give it some credence. Exactly. Well, you've gone and proven yourself, and I think you deserve a lot of credit, and you've uh, established yourself. You have a great 
couple of businesses and you've earned a lot of credibility. So congratulations on everything you've done. And thank you very much for joining us today on the Toronto Under Construction podcast. If people want to get in touch with you, how do they do that? Uh, I'm not a Twitter guy. I have have Instagram uh, at AX underscore sharp with an E. Um, And then obviously like IQ offices or landscape, both of those at IQ offices or at landscape on I think all of those companies are on Twitter and all of the different things, LinkedIn and definitely sure. Instagram. I'm sure they could just look up and the you, website and, and you know, Spire. Spire website has everything all together there. No, Spire website. I don't even know if it's live right now. We're going through a, a reconstruction of that, but like iqoffices.com uh, or landscape.ca uh, would be the two it. to go to. Uh, and I want to thank you guys for having me on. It's been great. A lot of fun. Keep up the good work on the podcasting. We're, we're trying. We're, we're, we're doing lots of guests yeah, and, yeah, uh, and really trying to do some ask the tough questions, you know, like quartz versus, uh, yeah, versus granite. I mean, that's the, that's the type of stuff that listeners want to know about. Yeah. So, Alex, we've actually also been talking a lot about, um, you know, we have this intro that you've probably heard, but we're, we're, we're missing a jingle as the outro. So could you give us a quick uh, <laughs> doo-wop ding- <laughs> outro? The problem is I've read the jingle has to have, like, your name in it. In order for it to be properly effective, you got to get somebody to sing, like, the Toronto Toronto under construction yeah. name. Okay, let's, let's hear it. I, I, you don't want to hear that. <laughs> I'm going to do your listeners a favor and not sing. My wife says that 90% of people that say the word fabric land immediately say it faster the second time. Yeah. And I'm like, that is like the, that, that's my kind of stat, you know? Because yeah, no, the jingle just sticks in your mind, right? T-U-C- so yeah, we need, we need that. T-U-C. 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 And it's a wrap. Anyways, that's a wrap. That's a wrap. Thanks, Alex. Thank you. Cheers. Cheers.